our text is Philippians chapter 4. We're looking at the first, or I guess verses 4 through 9 today. And so give ear, this is God's word. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Again, this is the word of God. We're looking at the question, when will I be happy with myself? Okay, this mini-series in chapter 4. And as we look at this, in our pursuit of happiness, part and parcel with that sense of happiness, one of the ways that we would describe what it means to have this happiness is a sense of peace, like a sense of inner peace, that life is okay, that it's not ready to erupt, that things aren't going to spiral out of control. We want this, but getting it's a challenge, right? Getting it's, a, it's difficult, you know, and recognizing the difficulty, culture and capitalism comes and tries to offer solutions, right? Marketing says, if you have stuff, then you'll have peace. You know, the media says, well, if you have relationships, you'll have peace. And uh, I think the self-help industry says, if you do these three or, no, four, or actually, set, no, if you do these 12, if you do these 15, if you do a bunch of stuff, right, it's about what you do. If you do these steps, then you'll have peace, and so the question for us this morning as we get started, as we, as we get ready to look at this text is, what do you do when you're trying to be happy with yourself? And does it work? You know, I mean, think through. What is it that you do when you're trying to achieve the sense of inner peace? It seems like most people pursue peace in a pretty eclectic approach. Okay, they sort of pick and choose. And they do this across wide spectrums of, of, of informational sources. But in the midst of the eclectic approach, in the midst of almost everybody's pursuit, there's this latent fear. Right? Am I looking in the right place? Am I really going to find peace here? You know, people say, well, this is the key to being happy. And, well, I, I hope it is. But I'm not sure if this is really going to make me happy. But I don't know what else to do. So, so here I go. It feels like we're just sort of shooting in the dark so often, and we hope that we guess right. And whether you lean on self-help or even religion or you choose whatever you think works for you, I think they have in common. Like all this, this eclectic approach has in common the fact that you end up being the one ultimately making a decision about how to have inner peace. Okay, it seems like the common thread, no matter what your approach is, and I know for me, when I'm the one making the ultimate decision, there are two big problems. Okay, there's two big problems that I have. First is that I know that I don't know enough about what's really going to make me happy. Okay, I'm finite. I'm not saying I don't think. I'm not saying I don't reason. I'm not saying I don't evaluate. But I've recognized that 
I get it wrong a lot. There have been a lot of times in my life where I have pursued peace or happiness in foolish ways, in short-sighted ways, in ways that ended up, I mean, it's the point where I get, I just get really nervous if it's up to me. Like if I'm ultimately the one having to figure all this stuff out, like that doesn't give me peace. (laughs) So even in the process of pursuing peace, if it's up to me, I'm in trouble. I mean, my shoulder is a great example of this. Okay, my shoulder's still not working right. Um, I still can't feel my fingers, my arm, and I don't really know what's wrong. You know, I've been to the doctor twice. I'm going back again tomorrow. I found out yesterday that I have a, like this medial deltoid. There's three parts of this. This middle part, my, my shoulder muscle doesn't flex. Like I'm lifting up my arm, and like over here it gets hard and it, you know, it moves up, but over here like it's just flaccid. And that's freaking me out. I'm like, what's wrong? I, I don't know what's wrong. I've been to the doctor. And, and, I'm, and I'm realizing that, you know, I know about fitness, you know, a little bit. I know about exercise. And I've, I'm smart enough to even be able to evaluate sometimes when doctors know what they're talking about and don't know. But if I'm the one making the decision about what is going to get my shoulder to get back to normal, I'm nervous, right? I'm nervous until I go talk to the doctor tomorrow and say, not only what's wrong with me, but why didn't you find this two weeks ago when I came in the first time? You know, like, what's going on here? And, and that's just that feeling that we have. I mean, how much more so if we're talking about happiness in life? I mean, again, I just, I get nervous when I'm the one who has to make the ultimate decision because I don't trust myself. I don't know enough. I don't know enough. Now, the other problem with the eclectic approach, that's more of the intellectual problem. The other problem with the, the, the eclectic approach is more experiential, what happens when you're down? When you've kind of figured out, well, here's my philosophy, and then it doesn't work. When you're the one who has put it all out, when you're the one who said it was right, you're leaning on yourself, and when you're empty, I mean really empty, I mean, there's nowhere to go. Like, where are you going to go? And it's really hard to get filled back up, isn't it? I mean, I've felt this way. You set your mind, and this is the way life's going to be, or this is how I'm going to live my life, and then all of a sudden you're empty, and you think, ah, like I got nothing, and and there's nowhere to go. Like, I mean, you know, and then you just end up, well, maybe I'll try a different philosophy, and then you start the cycle all over again. And I feel like that's what happens in our pursuit. You know, I mean, I hope that connects with with, with you. I mean, I feel like Christians and non-Christians deal with this. And so what's interesting is that Paul, in this text, he's giving us, a perspective he's giving because he's telling us there's another way there is another approach to this whole business and this is one of those passages where paul isn't trying to convince us that christianity is right he's really just saying here this is what works for people who believe in jesus you know so it's almost like what he's saying is if your way isn't working well for you this is how christians do it and it's an invitation to try this on you know the bible talks about taste and see that the lord is good and what paul is offering to us today is an opportunity for us to do it his way, to do it to do what works for him. Paul's saying, here's an alternative that's made a huge difference in my life. And what he does, he says this in three ways. Okay, so he, he gives us three points here. And these are, if you want to take notes on page eight in the bulletin, these are the three points. I'll give them to you quick and then we'll come back to them. The first point is the command to be happy. The command to be happy. Second, happiness fruit one. And then the third is happiness fruit two. Okay, happiness fruit one is how the world should perceive you. And then happiness fruit two, which is point three, is how you should perceive the world. Okay, so first, the command to be happy. This is verse four. So Paul starts by saying, 
Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. So what we have here, this is a command to be happy. Okay? Paul is commanding us to be happy. Rejoice. The word rejoice, we've talked about this in the past. It means happy. It means to be happy. This is a command saying be happy. Joy is happiness according to the Bible. And so we've defined this in the past. Saying, what he's saying is here, he's saying have good feelings. Have the good feelings that you get when something good happens to someone or something that you care about. Okay, that's what he's saying. He's saying have good feelings. Those feelings that you get when something good happens. Now, as I started to think about this, I thought this is kind of mean. Right? I mean, this is uh, one of my favorite quotes from the Pirates of the Caribbean is this is maddeningly unhelpful. <laughs> right? Because either you're already happy and you don't need him to tell you to be happy or you're not and now you're stuck. Right? How do you obey a command to be happy? How do you, how do you obey when someone tells you, like, have good feelings? Go ahead. Come on. Have good feelings. Right? I mean, you're stuck. And if you're not happy, now everybody knows you're not happy, or now you know, and now you have to admit that you're not happy, and now you have to recognize there's this huge gap between where I need to be and where I am, and, you know, life's bad. Now I'm worse. So, now, to save Paul a little bit, he's not the only one that does this. Bobby McFerrin did it in the 80s, right? Don't worry, be happy. Sang a whole song about it. See, Bobby was smart. He knew that if he could sing about it and get you to sing, you'd have a better shot, because when you're singing, you're happier, typically. But then, uh, then the Lion King followed in the 90s with Akuna Matata. No, you know, don't worry. Be, or I guess it was just no worries. Um, so, you know, the culture tells us the same thing, which, you know, I'm not. So how do we do this, right? How can Paul say this? How can you, can, you know, can you change how you feel? Can you? I mean, to me, it seems like, it seems like something has to change in order for us to change our feelings. I mean, that's been my experience. It's hard for me to have somebody come to me and say, hey, Stephen, be happy. If there's nothing that's motivating that, that increase in happiness, then I'm in trouble and I can't do it. And so I thought through what are the things that actually cause our feelings to change? And I came up with four things. Um, a solution to a problem. New circumstances. Right? These things make us happy. Um, a relationship that either distracts or drowns out the negative feelings. And then a new perspective. Right? Sometimes it's not the reality that changes, but it's seeing the reality in a different way that changes. So those are four things that I came up with that actually could cause our feelings to change. Now, we come back to Paul, and we actually find out that he's not just giving us a bare command to change our feelings. Okay? In verse 4, there are three words that actually communicate all four of these feeling changers. Okay, these things that change feelings. The three words are the reality that underlies the command. Okay, and those words are, verse 4, when he says rejoice in the Lord. Okay, it's that phrase, in the Lord. When Paul speaks about the Lord, he's talking about Jesus. In the Lord actually means out of the fullness of your relationship with Jesus. Okay, and so Paul is saying, be happy out of the fullness of your relationship with Jesus. So, well, what does that mean exactly? How does that help us? Well, all of this is connected to what Paul has said in chapter 2 of the same letter. When Paul talked about Jesus and his coming, this is what undergirds this command to be happy. Um, it's only Jesus that could justify a command like this. Because when we think about it, what is it that keeps us from being happy? It's suffering. 
right? It's problems, it's sickness, it's relational issues, it's when the world just doesn't seem to fit right, when things are broken or out of place. When these things happen, frustrations come, evil in the world. I mean, these are the things that cause us not to be happy. And Paul would say, well, you know, that's an accurate understanding of the world. The Bible teaches that we live in a world that's both beautiful and broken, right? I mean, even San Diego is described that way, right? San Diego is the ideal place to live, right? It's perfect weather, perfect lifestyle, everything you could ever want, and yet most of the people who live here can't afford to live here or don't have somebody to share it with. And it seems like that really hits the tension. It's beautiful and broken, right? Something's wrong. You know, we see the beauty of the world. We love living in San Diego. We see the lifestyle that it's supposed to afford us, and yet it feels like we're just not connecting to enjoying it, right? I mean, do you feel like that sometimes? I mean, that's, it just, and we don't know what to do about it. We don't know how to cross that gap, and even the fleeting tastes we get of happiness just don't seem to last, which makes it a little bit worse because we feel like everybody else is enjoying this that we can see, and we're the only ones. And so what Paul says in the midst of a world that's both beautiful and broken, Paul says, this is why I get so excited about Jesus. This is why I get so excited about Jesus. Because do you know how much God cares about the evil in the world? Do you know how much God cares about how broken the world is? He cares so much that he himself came to fix it. It's like he spent a few thousand years trying to help people to fix it. And when we didn't, God said, okay, I'm going to come down and I'm going to fix it myself. And so God came down as Jesus. And so if you wonder about the the frustration, the problems, the brokenness in the world, but more particularly in your life, and you wonder, like, how does God feel about this? Paul would say, Jesus reveals God's heart toward the brokenness in your life. You know, we oppose evil, right? There are evil things in our city, in our country, in our world, in our, in our lives that we oppose. All right? Well, Jesus came not just to oppose the evil that we oppose, but to oppose all of evil. He came to do battle with evil. He came to fight against the things that are broken. And, and it's interesting because he came to fight the evil that is perpetrated against us, the stuff that's been done to you, and the evil that we contribute, okay? Because none of us are without guilt. None of us have been perfect in our lives. We've all contributed in some measure to the brokenness of the world that we live in. And so Jesus came, and it's interesting because we see in his life, in his life on earth, he does battle with evil. He's battling the demons. He's battling sickness. He's battling diseases. And you see that he's got power over these things, right? In his battle, you know, himself against evil, he wins, right? He's, he's, he's more powerful than the forces of evil in the world. But then in his death on the cross, that was where he battled evil for you and for me. Okay, it's like his life was his own personal battle, himself against evil. And then it's like he takes on our evil. He takes on our sins, our problems, our brokenness when he goes to the cross, And it was so bad. The evil was so bad that it actually killed him. God himself comes in the flesh. And in his struggle against the evil that is in the world, it crushed him. It killed him. 
Isaiah 53 says he was bruised, he was crushed for our iniquities. And so for Paul, this is why the resurrection means everything. Okay? Because when you understand the story up to the point of the crucifixion, that is, you, it's like you can't understand. If you don't understand th- this, this cosmic battle that Jesus comes to deal with, and it's not cosmic in the sense that it's out there, it's everywhere, I guess, is, is what I'm saying. It's, it's the stuff in your life, right? He came to do battle with it, and it crushed him. But the resurrection means that, that he wasn't just trying and failed, okay? The resurrection is God's response, God sees Jesus, sees the battle, sees the victory, and God raises Jesus from the dead. And so it's like the death of Jesus shows how much he cares, how far he'll go to love you and to get into the nitty-gritty, to roll his sleeves up and deal with your issues. And then the resurrection shows that he wasn't just trying. The resurrection shows that he was victorious, that he was actually more powerful than evil with a capital E, more powerful than evil with a lowercase e, more powerful than your brokenness, more powerful than your sin, more powerful than the addictions that you deal with. Because if Jesus can overcome death, the worst evil that can be perpetrated, then, and he can bring new life from death, then he can fix every other evil in the world, every other bit of brokenness, every other bit of suffering. He can fix it. That's what it means. I mean, that's, and so when you believe in Jesus, you become in the Lord. You, you have a relationship with him. You become in him and his power, this resurrection power comes into you. Paul prays in another place. He prays that you would understand the power that's at work in you, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, because he says that the story of Jesus's resurrection becomes your story. And it brings about all four of the changes that actually change our feelings. If you think about it, right? There is, a, there is a solution to our problems, right? Jesus was raised from the dead. And in his resurrection, he has overcome evil. And so that means his power and hope are available to you. There are totally new circumstances. God is active in the world. You don't have to wonder how God feels about the evil in the world. You can see it. He himself came in Jesus to show how much he cares about it and to show that he can overcome it. There's a new relationship. You now, in Jesus, know God personally. You have a personal relationship with the one whose design and will is to eradicate evil, all of it, from the world. You know him. He cares for you personally, and he is at work in your life. And then there's obviously there's a radically new perspective. You believe in Jesus, right? And when you believe in him, the problems that you still have, those are vestiges of the evil that's still in the world that he has yet to defeat. Okay? Think about that, that he has yet to defeat. He is overcoming evil. He will overcome all evil. And if you stay convinced of the resurrection of Jesus and stay connected to that reality, you will see that his power works deeper and deeper and deeper into your life, into the brokenness. It brings healing. It brings power in your life and also in our communities, in our city. One author said this, the joy that Paul is calling for is unmitigated, untrammeled happiness. 
And he says, this should be the mark, the distinctive mark of the one who believes in Christ Jesus. Sure, there are problems. Okay, sure, there is brokenness. But come on, Jesus has been raised from the dead. Jesus has overcome evil. He has guaranteed that evil will come to an end. He has guaranteed and given you his own power so that you can walk in it, so that you can live in it. I mean, God is fixing the world. There are countries that continue to be transformed at the macro level by the power of God, by the fact that that God's grace and his kindness and his peace are being infiltrated in the world, in your life, in communities. I mean, yes, there's work to be done, but we're working with a diamond in the rough. Okay, we're working with a world that is beautiful and broken. We are people who are beautiful and broken. Okay, we're made in God's image, and that hasn't gone away. Plus, we have a promise. We have a promise. It started this letter. Paul said, for I am, what does he say? Chapter 1, verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Boy, that's hope. I mean, that's why Paul can say in every circumstance that you can be happy. That's why he can command it. So, the command to be happy, to to rejoice in the Lord. Our next two points deal with the fruits of what this happiness looks like. Okay? And so, our second point is happiness fruit number one. And this is how the world should perceive you. How the world should perceive you. This is verses five through seven. Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The word reasonableness, another way to think about it, another way to translate it would be gentleness. And if you, you know, I I did a word study on this and um, one dictionary says that this word means not insisting on every right and letter of the law. And I thought about this, that again, the distinctive mark of a Christian should be happiness. Um, Secondly, the distinctive mark of a Christian should be gentleness. Gentleness. Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Everyone, okay? Not just in the church, not just your friends, but let it be that everyone would know you as gentle, as not insisting on your rights, as not, I mean, what's the opposite of gentle, right? Harsh, um, argumentative, judgmental. I mean, think about this. Paul's saying, let your gentleness be known to everyone. And as I thought and prayed through this, I thought, gosh, why is it that we spend so much time fighting and raging against the world? I mean, does gentleness really characterize the disposition of the church? Would the world around us say that, oh, when we think about the church, we think about some gentle, happy people? I mean, it's almost like we have to have our own way all the time. Now, this doesn't mean that we're not active 
Okay, this doesn't mean that we don't have opinions. But again, what's your disposition when you're sharing your opinions? You know, our hope is that we would love the world so much that they would understand and be blessed by our faith. And is that possible if we're yelling and screaming? I don't know. It doesn't seem like it. For me, when I think about this, I just, it, it seems like we need to recognize that, uh, I just, I think in many ways the church has missed this verse. I don't know. I mean, just missed this picture. We feel justified because we're angry, you know, because we are, and we've got reasons for why we want the things that we want, and, it's, and we need to slow down. Um, and one of the checks on this is, is what Paul says at the end of verse 5. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. It's kind of a weird phrase to follow up. How does that fit? You know, it almost seems like he's giving a command and then telling us why, right? How does the Lord is at hand fit in with being reasonable? Well, it's interesting because the same language is used here by Jesus in the Gospels when he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? And what Jesus means there is he's saying the kingdom of heaven is right in front of you. It's come. It's here. You can see it. Because he's bringing it. He is the king. He brings the kingdom. And so what we see here that Paul is aiming at, he's saying, Check, this is amazing. This is powerful. When you, have, when, you, when you evidence gentleness in how you interact, when you are interacting with the world with a gentle spirit, you are actually embodying Jesus. you are putting Jesus' own face before whoever it is you're talking to. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, you think about how did Jesus respond when they came with swords and clubs? How did Jesus respond when they whipped him, when they beat him, when they mocked him? Now, look, this doesn't mean that you enable other people to sin against you. Okay, this doesn't mean that you lie down like a doormat and never say anything. Okay, this doesn't mean you don't have healthy boundaries in your life. But again, even as you're enforcing those boundaries, how are you doing it? Are you raging? Are you are you fighting back? Are you or are you gently but firmly? You know what I'm saying? But what's amazing is that when we do that, when we do that, we put Jesus on display. We bring Jesus near to others, and then. What happens is, you know, I don't know how many of you have seen Ben-Hur. Do you remember Ben-Hur, the movie? It's like a three-and-a-half-hour movie with um, Charlton Heston. That, yeah. And um, there's this one instance where this Jesus character comes to give Charlton Heston, who's this um, guy who's been enslaved, um, a drink of water. And the Roman guard comes over and is about to whip Jesus. You know, you, and, and then Jesus sort of looks up at him. And you don't get to see the face, but you, you, know, you see the guard's face looking at Jesus. And this guard is, you know, getting ready to, and he sees you, and it's, it startles him, and he kind of just sort of, kind of just, like, embarrassed and walks away. And it's interesting. I mean, that's kind of what, you know, if, when we are gentle, when we are not fighting back the way the world fights against us when it does, when we are gentle and reasonable in that sense, they come face to face with Jesus, and they have to deal with him. 
they have to deal with him. And that way we give the most accurate picture we can. And so if they reject us, they reject him. Okay, and it's not about us. It's not about us getting our way. It's about us gently standing up for what Jesus says is the right thing to do. And if it doesn't go well, then we go back and realize this is an area, this is one of the vestiges of evil, right, that Jesus hasn't yet dealt with, that he's going to deal with. Okay? And so it's just amazing that when we put on this, this, this spirit, this attitude, especially in terms of dealing with the world, that we can bring the Lord near. We can bring him uh, in a very real way into, into the conversation. Um, okay, now the second thing. So, so fruit one is reasonableness, this idea of gentleness. In this, in this fruit about how we deal with the world, the world should see us as gentle. The world should also see us as stress-free. Okay? I'm going to push on this one. This is hard. Yeah. This is tough. But look at verse 6, right? It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the God of peace, which surpasses, uh, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Boy, you know, and I was struggling. How am I going to explain this or how am I going to, you know, get y'all for this? But, um, and then it hit me, you know what? Gentleness and anxiety actually are mutually exclusive. You know, and as I began to think more about that, I thought the opposite, again, the opposite of gentleness is belligerence, harsh, domineering. You're not understanding. You're being judgmental. These things come when we're anxious. You know, we lose our gentleness when we become anxious because we're worried, right, that we're going to lose something. We're worried that something's going to go wrong that's out of our control and we don't want that. Right, And so the anxiety comes when we fear the future. We fear what's going to happen or we fear what people are going to think about us or we fear what's going to happen to our country or the world or the, or the city. Or the, you know, and, and these are the things that cause us to be anxious. And, and it, it's interesting, too, because I think this then helps us. It puts a little bit of a diagnostic on us to know when we're like, standing up in the right way. Okay, because if we're standing up for the good of others, if we're standing up to serve, if we're standing up because we care so much about trying to fix what's broken in the world, then we're going to have a gentle disposition. Okay, but when we're standing up because we're trying to protect something, because we're trying to defend something, because we are concerned that our happiness or our peace or our security or our anything is being threatened, that's usually when, when our responses are characterized by anxiety, which leads to belligerence and fear and you know, vitriol and, you know, lambasting and making fun of people and, and all the things that we're tempted to do. And so I guess when anxiety rises up in you, when you are feeling anxious, realize that you're probably trying to protect something that maybe you need to, to slow down on, right? Maybe you're, or maybe you're trying to protect something in the wrong way. And so you want to try to go back to being gentle, right? Now, that's hard. Okay, that's hard. Paul knows it's hard. And so what Paul says is that the real answer, when anxiety rises up, when the fears rise up, when you begin to deal with this stuff, the real answer is you go run to God. Okay, run into the presence of God, wherever you are. If you're at work, if you're at home, if you're in the car, if you're on the street, wherever you are, run into the presence of God. 
the key to not being anxious about anything is to, with, with your prayers and supplications, make your requests known to God. Okay? Now, how does that work? Well, basically what it means is, I mean, just, let me just step it out. Anxieties come, problems come, brokenness is in your life, you're frustrated, you're angry, you don't have peace, whatever it is. Go to the Lord. Okay? Kneel in prayer, close your eyes in prayer, sit down in prayer, just pray. Okay? Go to the Lord in prayer. Okay? When you do that, thank Him first for letting you be in Jesus. Okay? Paul says, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Okay? With thanksgiving. So thank Him first. Thank you, God, for this day. Thank you, God, that I'm alive. Thank you for something. Right? Just to get you going. And then, God, thank you that I'm in the Lord. And if you can remember that, you know, that, that Jesus, you know, I mean, all that stuff starts to come into your mind and, and, and something happens. We'll talk about it here in a sec. So thank him for letting you be in Jesus. And then let, the, I guess, let that process begin to think, well, what does that mean for me? Right, let me slow down a second and just think about what does it mean that I'm in Jesus and I'm dealing with this? You know, and already it begins to start changing your attitude. It changes your perspective. Sometimes in your prayers you might see Jesus, right? All of a sudden Jesus is there at the right hand of God and you realize, ooh, wait, I'm, I'm before God. Wow, this is amazing. And even before you get to your request, that Thanksgiving step can slow you down and actually begin to reset you even before you make the request. So you go to the Lord, you thank him, and then you ask him for what you need. God, please fix this. God, this is broken. God, I'm frustrated. God, I'm not experiencing peace. God, I need your help. God, this person is driving me crazy. God, my job, I mean, anything. Ask him for what you need. Tell it to him. He says, all these things. I mean, God, I need a parking space. God, I need, I mean, it, it doesn't matter. Big, small, like bring it all to him. That's what Paul is saying here. Go into the Lord. Ask him for everything. So you ask him for what you need. And then think about how he feels about your request. Okay? Think about who God is. Think about what you know about God. Think about the way God has treated you in the past. Think about the way that God, you think about what God promises in the word. Think about things that you know about God and just like bring God into that. Like experience the reality of who God is with your request. When you do that, you get this sense that he can take care of it, right? Whatever you're asking. He can do it, and he will if it's best for you, okay? That's what you want. As you imagine who God is, what you want to conclude is that God can deal with this and will if it's best for you. And then, you know, if he doesn't, I mean, I was going to say it's best for you, but we want to do more than that, right? Because there, there is a lot more than that. If he doesn't do what you ask, it's because he wants to put you forward in the world as a picture of Jesus. Okay? He wants to put you forward. Every time God says no to something that you want, it's because he wants to put you forward in the world, you forward in your family, you forward at your work, you forward in the church. He wants to put you forward as a picture of Jesus. Okay, people can hear about the power of Jesus to overcome evil on the cross. Okay, we've just talked about that. 
People can hear about that. And some hear and believe. But people can see the power of Jesus to overcome evil in your life when God says, I know you don't like this, but I'm going to ask you to bear up under it. Okay, every time you're able to respond to evil or to frustration or to problems or brokenness in your life, every time you can respond to those things from your past, every time you do that in a way that you're still happy in the victory of Jesus, you show you are a modern-day picture of the resurrection. Can you put that somewhere deep in your heart? Every time you respond to something that's wrong in the world in a way that you're still happy in the victory of Jesus, you show that his, you're a picture of his resurrection. You show that his power in you is stronger than the power of evil in your life. And so whether or not God answers and says, yes, I'll take this away, I will fix this evil or I'll fix this problem in your life, or I'm asking you to stand up under it because I would love to put my power on display in you. I would love you to be a picture today of Jesus' resurrection. I mean, like either way, it's a victory of Jesus. Either way, it's a picture that Jesus is fixing what is wrong with the world. And in that, I think you can rejoice. I think that produces happiness, even if the reality doesn't change. And that's what the world needs to see. The world needs to see that, that Christians have an answer, that we actually... Not that we have answers for everything, but that there really is hope. I mean, that's what Paul is offering here. If you're not a Christian today, this is the hope that Paul offers. This is the power and the strength that Paul offers. It's a perspective. It's a reality. It's a relationship with Jesus where the circumstances of life are not powerful enough to steal your peace. Because now, no matter what happens, the God of peace gives you his peace. And that does transcend circumstance. In every situation, you can experience this. Mm. Okay, our last point. This is happiness fruit two. Um, This is how you should perceive the world, verses eight and nine. How you should perceive the world. Once you understand the victory of Jesus and you rejoice in the Lord, this is where it leads. It leads not just to how the world sees you, that you're gentle and that you're, um, and that you're not anxious, um, but then it also affects how you perceive the world. Okay? Paul says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, anything excellent, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. There's something kind of interesting about verse 8. Okay, this is a list of virtues that come directly from Greek pagan philosophy. Okay? This isn't Paul quoting some list from the Old Testament. This isn't Paul picking and choosing from parts of the Old Testament, taking you know, the scriptures of the Old Testament, putting them here. This is Paul taking Greek pagan philosophy 
and some of the ideals and the virtues that the non-Christian world esteemed and putting them in Scripture. Okay, you just need to know that. Um, why is that important? Well, th- I guess this would be like somebody, like this would be like if we found in Scripture Paul saying, whatever senseless acts of beauty you see, right? Whatever random acts of kindness you see, um, think about these things. Okay, that's, that's kind of the gist of what he's getting at. The Philippians would have kind of said, oh, that's interesting. You know, Stoicism talks about this. Or, you know, the Greek philosophers talked about these things. Um, and so what is he doing? Well, what Paul is saying here is he's saying the world is still full of things that can be celebrated, that can be appreciated. Okay? In a sense, Paul is saying when you look out on the world, don't reject the world outright. Okay, he's saying live in the world and seek to bring out its best. And that means see what is good in the world, affirm it and celebrate it. Okay, see what's good in the world. God loves the world and loves things about the world. The world was made good, right? It's beautiful. It's broken. And so Paul is saying find the beauty in the world and affirm it. Think about it. Remember it. Because honestly, the hardest thing for us especially given the way the media works, the way that our country works, is that like we're bombarded with all of the negativity. Okay? We're bombarded. You know, you can't, nobody's going to buy a newspaper if it's all just about happy things, right? Nobody's going to watch the news if you don't get to see who got murdered, right? Or who got raped. I mean, th- these are the things that make the news because they freak you out enough. Nobody, you know, the happy stories just aren't a big deal for most of us. Or, uh, and so... We get bombarded. One author said, how do you celebrate the goodness of the creator if you fill your mind only on the places in the world where humans have made ugly? That's good. And so Paul is saying, look, remember. He's he's saying, look at the world and see its beauty. Look at the good things in the world. Look at the way the world works. Look at the, I mean, food. (laughs) you know, for some people, is a tremendous source of beauty. Um, You know, community, um, seeing the way that people care for each other, right? Recognizing how many good things people do. What Paul is saying here is he's saying, look at the best in the world, affirm it, and celebrate it. Don't think that the world is simply on the edge of a precipice about to go into hell. It couldn't get any worse, okay? Don't let your mind be completely controlled by a negative view of the world. You know, here at Harbor, we talk about this in terms of being city positive, right? We believe that the city is made in the image of God. It's beautiful and it's broken, right? And so, again, you want to have both of those things in your mind. You don't want to be Pollyanna. You don't want to be, you know, overly, uh, you know, with rose-colored glasses. You do want to recognize and, and, and deal with the evil and the brokenness in the world. But Paul, it's almost like Paul is saying, look, in the midst of this, as you remember the victory of Jesus, as you remember, you can have hope. And you can see, I mean, because so here's what happens. I mean, number one, when you recognize and affirm and celebrate the good in the world, you stay in healthy relationship with it. You know, there are too many Christians, unfortunately, and I used to be this way, that if somebody wasn't a Christian, they couldn't do anything right. Right? You aren't good if you're not a Christian, I used to say. If you're not, a, if you're not doing something for the glory and honor of God, then everything that you're doing actually is rank evil. I didn't have a whole lot of friends back then. 
especially non-Christian friends. I mean, who wants that guy at a party? You know? Um, and I think what Paul is doing here is he's helping us. Yes, the world is broken. Yes, there's great evil. Yes, there are awful things that, get, that happen every day. <clears throat> but Paul is saying that the world is still made in the image of God. People are still made in the image of God, and that image is not gone. Okay, it's not been completely obliterated. And when we see that, we, I mean, not only does it enable us to relate to the world in a healthy way, but it also reminds us that Jesus is, in fact, on the throne. Jesus is, in fact, still reigning. Jesus is, in fact, still working in the world to see that it would experience his love and his mercy and his grace. When we see the way the world reflects the image of Jesus, you know, the good things, the honorable things, the just things, the pure things, you know, Jesus in his own, I mean, he, he does show us what that means. And so I guess I feel like in another way, this verse, verse 8, it's also something that undergirds our whole approach to the marketplace, right? That work is good, right? It's also broken. Work is beautiful and broken, right? The arts, they are beautiful and they are broken. You know, I mean, we're dealing with this tension. We want to keep these things together. And, uh, and I think Jesus, you know, as he's reigning, he shows us how to do that. Um, and so the tie-in here with... Um, with verse 9, Paul ends this by saying, What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. When you can look at the world and affirm what's good, when you can see the image of God in the world, when you can see what God is doing in the world and how even the non-believing world is doing things that fit underneath his authority and do things that he would have you do, what Paul is saying here is it's almost like a father you know, and a son or a mother and a daughter where they're walking through the city, you know, and, and, and the parent has their arm around the child and they're just sort of pointing things out. You know, there's like this sort of apprenticeship kind of idea here that when you see the world that way, Paul is teaching the Philippians to look at the world the way he does in this way. When we do that, it's almost like God comes alongside of us with his arm around our shoulders and we're looking now at the world the way he sees it. And when that happens, we also remember that he's in control so the stuff that's broken, he's fixing. Sometimes he'll tap on us to be part of that fixing process. And the stuff that is there all resounds. I mean, the stuff that's there that's right, it all resounds to his praise. Um, so that's it. I mean, I, I don't have anything else other than just to say I, I really do think that this reality, this, this reality of Jesus that he has dealt with evil, that he cares about it, and he continues to deal with it. This is something that has given me true and unlasting peace, or unending peace, not unlasting peace. This has caused my own heart to experience more comfort in the midst of suffering, in the midst of anything. And I've seen this work. I've seen it here. I've seen it in so many people's lives. Um, This is an offer. Like, it's an invitation. If you want this peace, if you want to know this sense of inner peace, this sense of happiness, to where you've got a reality that you can plug into that will give you good feelings. I mean, it's not just about the feelings, but will give you the sense that God is in control. All you need to do is believe in Jesus. Because when you plug into him, it's his death for you that gives you the initial experience. And when you experience his forgiveness, when you experience him healing you from the inside out, that's what helps you see, yes, he is in charge. And you can start to see how he's working things out in the world for good. 
which gives you a sense that, yes, you know, I can trust in God and I can have his peace. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this word that is so powerful. Um, Would you help us? God, we want to rejoice in what you're doing. And we struggle because we see so much of the brokenness and we don't remind ourselves enough of the beauty and we don't remind ourselves enough of how you're working in our lives and in the world. So please, God, help us. And if there are those here who haven't yet put their trust in you, Father, would you draw them? Would you help them see how good you are? Would you show them how much you care, not just about brokenness, but about them, so that they would come and love you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.